Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. Thanks for being here. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. This is episode 59 and part one of my conversation with the enlightening Vanessa Cornett. I was over the moon when Vanessa agreed to be a guest on Key Ideas. From her extensive bio, you'll learn why it's amazing that she had time to chat with me. From the start, I figured I'd have to split our conversation into two episodes because Vanessa has countless insights to share about our collective journey through a global pandemic. In part one, you hear Vanessa identify eight dimensions of well-being, and she explains the benefits of healthy disengagement. Yes, apparently that is a thing. Before we get started, here's more about Vanessa. Vanessa Cornett is the Director of Keyboard Studies and Professor of Piano and Piano Pedagogy at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, St. Paul. She's the author of the book, Mindful Musician, Mental Skills for Peak Performance. She's teaching as a senior lecturer at the Ankara University of Music and Fine Arts as a Fulbright Scholar in Turkey for the 2022 and 2023 academic year. As an international clinician, Dr. Cornett has presented workshops and masterclasses to music students and teachers in 23 of the United States and in the UK, Finland, Serbia, Croatia, Greece, Spain, Argentina, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, Nigeria, and South Africa. She's an active clinician for national conferences of the Music Teachers National Association, the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, and the College Music Society. She's also presented at the World Piano Conference, International Society of Music Education World Conference, International Conference on Spirituality and Music Education, International Conference of the Arts in Society, Annual Symposium of the Performing Arts Medicine Association, the Center for the Study of International Governance, and the Nobel Peace Prize Forum. She earned her DMA degree in Piano Performance and Literature from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. She earned her Bachelor of Music degree in Piano Performance and her Master's degree in Piano Pedagogy from West Virginia University, and she holds additional certificates in Sports Psychology and Occupational Ergonomics. Vanessa is a Certified Meditation Instructor, with a special interest in mindfulness and performance anxiety management for musicians. Her current research focuses on contemplative practices, sports psychology, peak performance, and the mental health of musicians. And now, here's Leela with Vanessa. Welcome, Vanessa. I could not wait to hear your session at the virtual MTNA conference called Lessons Learned Teacher Wellbeing in a Post Pandemic World. For listeners who are not familiar with you, Vanessa, here's my shout out. I consider you the Brene Brown of the music world. <laughs> I'm so eager to share what you shared in your session, and I hope to dig a little deeper. In fact, I hope that you will also be willing to share tips from your book, The Mindful Musician, which I've been devouring devouring right now. So let's jump in and tackle the very first buzzword of your session, well-being. <laughs> 
Thank you, Layla. It's lovely to be here. And boy, you picked a good buzz buzzword, didn't you? It's just a sexy word. It's everywhere. Wellness is everywhere. Well-being is everywhere. And the thing that's interesting to me about well-being is, in my mind, it's more or less a subjective state. You know, I can't comment on your level of well-being, just like you can't um, make a judgment call on mine, because it's sort of a subjective uh, perception of how comfortable or happy or healthy someone is. Um, so it's interesting that this is a buzzword and yet it's a deeply subjective uh, sort of state of being is sort of how I see it. And how do we navigate that healthy emotional well-being that we're all striving for? <laughs> well, with difficulty, I think, because <laughs> well-being is so multidimensional. Um, and also because in our culture, you know, we're such a goal-oriented culture. I think there's a tendency to think this is a goal. I need to get to a place of well-being rather than thinking, well, this is a journey and this is a process. And every day I'm going to be a little different and I'm going to feel a little different. So, but to answer your question, I think um, one of the secrets to navigating um, this sort of state of well-being involves mindfulness, because if you're not aware of how you're thinking and feeling, you can't really sort of gauge your level of well-being. You're sort of um, floating in a cloud of mystery without really knowing um, your sort of your state of mind at this particular time. So can you explain what mindfulness is? How would you sure. qualify that in a nutshell? So I like to give two definitions of mindfulness. I like to give the literal translation um, from the Sanskrit, and that is simply awareness. That's the easiest definition because we use mindfulness as a synonym for awareness all the time. You know, be mindful that you don't trip on the sidewalk or whatever. But back in the 70s, John Kabat-Zinn developed a, a sort of a more detailed definition that I use a lot. I think it's fantastic. Um, mindfulness is basically, according to John Kabat-Zinn, the deliberate and gentle direction of attention without judgment of the thoughts and events of the present moment. <laughs> There's a lot in there. I mean, it's it's a pithy definition, but the fact that we're talking about um, it's a deliberate focus of attention. Uh, it's directed without judgment as much as we can, which sometimes we I was can say that's going to be pretty much impossible for most of us. You know, that's the hardest thing, don't you think? I think it's impossible to stay in that place. I think we have to realize that just like well-being, mindfulness is a journey and our minds are not going to be anchored in non-judgment. I mean, we wouldn't survive if our minds were anchored in that place, but we can keep going back to that the place. So when we notice, for example, that we're criticizing ourselves or we notice that we're, you know, saying, you know, hateful things, we can, in our minds, we can stop and say, well, wait a minute, what if I suspended that just for right now? So I think it's returning to that place over and over again, knowing that we're not going to live in that place because that's not where our minds live. And in your talk, you talked about eight dimensions of wellness. I had never really thought of that before, but can you explain that for us? Sure. And that um, for that um, sort of model, I would give a shout out to the University of Michigan um, and their wellness um, center in the School of Music and Dance and Theater. I don't remember the name of the school, but I got that from Paola Savidu's book, 
teaching the whole musician, which is a really great resource for teachers. Um, and she comes up with sort of a, it's a visual of a lotus flower with these eight dimensions. And the idea is that we've got physical well-being, but we've also got, um, you know, emotional well-being, financial, social, you know, it's all these different sort of petals of this lotus flower that interlock somehow. And the reason why I like the multidimensional model of well-being is it helps us remember that if one of those elements is affected, it affects everything else. Um, and the example that I sometimes give is if you're a musician, I'm a pianist, so that's usually my example. So if I'm a pianist and I sprain my finger, that affects my physical well-being because I've got a physical injury. But it also might affect my occupational well-being if I have a gig that night and I can't play. If I have to hire a sub, it could affect my financial well-being because I've lost that money. Or it could affect my um, emotional, mental well-being. Maybe I think it's a permanent injury and it'll affect my livelihood as a musician. So that's an example of sort of a ripple effect of when one area of my life is affected, it sort of affects all other aspects of my well-being. And I think it's just easier for me to think of it as multidimensional than one thing mm -hmm. being well it's just hard to sort of conceptualize for me well and what I don't like about myself I I tend to spill over if there's one dimension that's really bothering me it it spills over into the other dimensions I think that's probably just being human but that Absolutely. does help me think through things just a little bit more oh that's why I'm feeling this way because of this situation over there Right. And we are integrated beings. We're not compartmentalized. And I actually think it's healthy to be aware of that, of how things affect other things in our lives. That's just, um, we're just really complex beings. <laughs> I think let's just embrace that and try to navigate that. Right. And being complex means we're usually busy. And you know, most of my listeners are going to be piano teachers. And of course, we're doing above and beyond just teaching a piano lesson. We are a CEO, we are our admin, we're doing a lot of things and we've got our hands full and probably 110% full. And I like what you were talking about in your session about this being another trendy phase. And I'm wondering, is being 110% even possible? What do you think? <laughs> I love that I use that because I'm noticing that in my students, you know, I teach, um, mostly undergrad students at the university, some grad students, but I noticed that they'll use that phrase. They'll say, I agree with you 110% or they'll say 200%. <laughs> I'll say, you know, mathematically, that's impossible, right? But they're not speaking literally. They're coming from a culture that says, give more than you think you can. And so not only I mean, this is just me, you're asking for my opinion. So here it is. Okay. Not only is it impossible to give 110%, I think it's impossible to give 100%. Because 100% maxes out what you can do. And, you know, we were chatting earlier today about, you know, when when will we ever get done? And when will we learn it all? And when will we become experts? It never happens. If I say I'm going to play you a Beethoven sonata, and it's going to be 100% perfect. Well, that's laughable, right? Because it's never going to be 100% perfect. So I kind of wish I know that we love to work in numbers and percentages, but I kind of wish we would think more realistically about what is it possible to give? 
when I was an undergrad and I was in a piano performance degree and I was practicing hours and hours a day and I had this wonderful teacher um, and right before a recital or a performance, he'd be standing backstage and he would sort of pat me on the back and he'd say, all right, he'd say, go out there and give it 80%. Oh. And, and that <laughs> back then, because, you know, I was an angsty teenager, right? Back then that offended the hell out of me. I didn't tell him that, but the look on my face must have been, what do you mean 80%? That No, I'm going to be 100%. Well, okay, so now I'm old and jaded and wiser. <laughs> and I realized that what he was saying is if you walk out on that stage and you perform and what you're able to show your audience is 80% of what you're capable of, that's a successful performance, right? Because mm -hmm. we all miss notes. We all have memory slips. Little things happen. We never are able to perform at our peak, 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 optimal. You know, very rarely do we have those performance experiences. So I see that what he was saying is 80%, that's a successful performance. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish we would think that way about other aspects of our lives. It's realistic and it also allows for some self-compassion in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we could dig into self-compassion. I do want to do that, but I, I want to go back to what you were saying. Well, first of all, I'm wondering where he got the number 80. You know, I, why why yeah. is 80 better than 90 or 75? I wonder too. And, you know, this is back in the days when nobody was doing research on, you know, stage fright or the mental aspect of performance. So I'm sure he just sort of grabbed it. But, you know, he was a very experienced performer. So I'm sure that was his his sort of, in my experience, if I gauge my performance to be at 80%, that's a good performance. And of course, I'm talking about professional performers who go out there several times a week and play in a pit orchestra or they play, you know, they accompany and people who are performing all the time know that you you're doing a job. This is your career. It can't be fabulous 100% every time, you know, it has to be really good. <laughs> but now you did share that you are uh, stand on a soapbox. I don't know if you, you remember what soapbox this is. Uh, but this was a quote, institutions and culture work against our well being. And why do you think that's true? Uh, <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> You're right. It's a soapbox of mine. And I'm coming from a place sort of two, um, two avenues. One is my culture in higher ed, which I think works against wellness, which I could talk at length about. But I also think uh, teachers in the public schools would feel the same way. Teachers who have full teaching studios um, of pre-college students might feel the same way. But the other avenue I'm coming at is more of a cultural avenue of how we have sort of developed this attention economy, you know, sort of how our attention is being monopolized and almost colonized in a way that makes us feel that we have to be busy and productive and useful 24 hours a day or whatever. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure which of those paths you want me to take. <laughs> well, you know, it is kind of interesting because I heard the phrase relentless productivity and I fell into that trap for a couple of different reasons. But why do you think we fall into that? Well, my gosh, that's the million dollar question. I, I will say that I think we all fall into that trap. And I think especially 
high achieving people. And let's face it, most musicians and most music teachers to get to where they are, are high achieving people. They may tell you they're slackers, they may tell you they're lazy, but they're not. They're high achievers. They have the discipline to sit in a practice room, to hone their craft, to work with students. So let's just assume that we and your listeners are in that realm of high achieving people. We we enjoy what we do. And when you enjoy what you do, you want to do more of it, right? So if we accomplish something and that feels good, well, it will feel even better if I accomplish two things or if I, or if I create two CDs or if I publish two articles. And part of that is driven by a culture that keeps us in this chronic state of, <clears throat> I think it's actually low level anxiety, you know, just sort of the, the marketing and the social media and the um, sort of uh, distraction. I think it leads us to believe that we have to be producing, we have to be productive, we have to be useful. And the, the problem with that mindset is that when we think that way, what we're saying is this present moment right now, me sitting in this chair, you sitting where, where you are, us having a conversation, me looking out of the window at my backyard, this is not good enough. Right now isn't good enough because, Layla, I could be checking my email right now <laughs> as I'm talking to you. I could be multitasking. I could be on some kind of an app rather than saying, you know, you know, it's almost a, it's almost a culture of resistance to say, I'm going to step back and disengage and not play this game where I have to stay busy and I have to stay productive and I have to stay useful. So, yeah, it, it's hard because it's almost like swimming upstream, right? If our culture is sort of pushing you in one direction and you turn around like a little salmon <laughs> and say, well, I'm going to go in this other direction, it does take very deliberate uh, attention and energy, I think. Well, okay. Two things. First of all, thank you for describing what I'm experiencing and what my husband notices. He's in the corporate world and he is so good at, oh, I'm done working, you know, and he's done, you know, where I'm never finished. And it's mostly because, okay, well, now I really want to go practice because I've been saving that. For, that's the best part of my day. But he doesn't understand that mentality of, I'm really never done, but you've just put some words into my mouth. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I think what you're describing is true of all creative artists. That's not mm -hmm. just our job. It's a part of our identity. Mm -hmm. So of course we don't stop our job at five o'clock and come home and do crossword puzzles and watch TV. No, we want to listen to music. We want to talk about music. We want to practice music. We want to. So that's why we're so entangled and it's hard to separate. Um, I mean, that's, I think you're describing what it's like to live as a creative artist. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, my mother is a, an art professor, retired art professor, and she's still creating at 80 some years old. And <laughs> I see her and I'm thinking, yeah, that's who I am. That's, you know, because she can't stop. She's addicted <gasps> right. to it as well. Right. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to, to move towards now is the term disengagement, because you're right. A lot of us became salmon streaming, stream, swimming upstream during the pandemic. Can you explain why you're using that word disengagement? Um, more and yeah, more. 
<clears throat> sure. The quick answer is I'm using the word disengagement because there isn't a better word. And so <laughs> I love how language evolves. And so I'm waiting uh, for somebody to invent a better word. And the reason why I say that is because traditionally we have used the word disengagement in a negative context. You know, 20 years ago, I might have said to you, my students are not engaged, or I don't feel like I'm able to engage my audience, or I felt that my friends were disengaged. Okay, well, so we kind of have this mindset that this is a bad thing, and we always want to stay engaged. But actually, I think one thing the pandemic taught me is that disengaging from Toxic is too strong a word. People overuse that word. But let's just say an unhealthy work environment or an unhealthy um, culture or just an unhealthy mindset is actually a healthy thing because it's like leaving a party that you never really wanted to be at in the first place, <laughs> right? Like, that is a good description. Yes. Standing at this punch bowl going, I don't even want to be here. Why am I here? So walking out the door and sitting down at your piano and improvising, that would be disengaging in a way that's really healthy. So we can have physical disengagement. We have people who are actually leaving the profession. We have teachers who are not teaching anymore. We have musicians who have just said this is too hard. Um, but most people are experiencing what I would call, you know, sort of emotional disengagement where we do our jobs maybe, but we're not giving 110%, right? We're working for a company, but we're not thinking of that company as our family. It's a job. You go, you provide a service, you get a paycheck, you go home. Back in the day, that was sort of an unhealthy thing. We're like, no, no, you've got to be engaged more than that. But anymore, I think we're learning that actually back to the multidimensional model of wellness, that's actually a healthy thing because it makes space for other aspects of our life if we disengage from what we don't really need to be um, doing or where we don't really need to be investing our attention. It really struck a chord with me, literally and figuratively, <laughs> because I I said no to a university position after a life-changing event and immediately I felt relief. So I was already done running that treadmill and that was very clear that that was giving me a lot of stress. So that felt good to get rid of that. But also, you know, clamping down, staying home, hunkering down, not being able to go out. It was really weird when we were let out of the cage again. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to be busy Friday and Saturday and Sunday nights, or I want, you know, I want my time. And so that's how I feel like I really disengaged and I really don't want to go back there again. And isn't it interesting that, you know, a lot, at least in my workplace, uh, I hear administrators say things like getting back to normal now that we're moving back to normal now that we're, and I think to myself, number one, that's impossible. It's never going to be go back to where it was. And number two, why would we want to, you know, why, if you, if the, if the earth, if mother nature uh, imposed upon us this pandemic that forced us to stop what we were doing and reevaluate and re-reflect and we realize you know for example the relief you felt when you turned down the job maybe 5 years ago that would have been combined with a lot of guilt or maybe it would have been combined with you know a pressure to to please and to you know engage in the profession but we're changing and why would mother nature have imposed this upon us if if we don't make something of that and look at our lives and say you know 
what we were doing was not functional. Actually, it was a little bit dysfunctional. Actually, it was a lot dysfunctional. And how am I going to disengage from that habit of thought and turn my attention elsewhere? So I think it's, I think it's causing a lot of just emotional upheaval, but I think it's a really healthy thing for many people. Now, you said that there are studies that show that teachers are disengaging. Can like what kind of studies have been have you found so far? Yeah, so um, my faculty friends and I did a lot of reading during the pandemic, especially when we were face, uh, faced with pressures to continue as always. You know, I've got um, colleagues who teach a group piano, for example, and for administrators to say, okay, literally it was on a Friday and they said, starting Monday, all of your courses will be online. So you have to imagine, you know, not just music teachers, but teachers working in a lab with multiple keyboards and technology and having absolutely no help and no resources. Okay, so suddenly we're expected to do this Herculean effort just to keep the status quo. All right. So my colleagues and I were doing all this reading. And I think a lot of scholars were doing sort of informal, you know, qualitative studies, interviews, reaching out to teachers saying, how are you feeling? And um, the some of the research that I read um, suggested that teachers are not leaving like in, in mass, you know, a, a mass exodus, but they're emotionally pulling away from their jobs. And this is something that administrators don't like to see because they'll say something like, we need you to be engaged. We need you to do this service work. And, but when you withdraw emotionally from your, you know, your institution or your organization or your job, um, you giving yourself space to invest your time and energy elsewhere, even if that time and energy is spent doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think during the pandemic, what the research showed is that this was almost a self-preservation strategy. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you were forced to disengage in order to sort of survive. Um, so for me, disengaging somewhat, first of all, felt like a relief. You know, I gave myself permission not to think about my students like at midnight. Um, but also, I was able to see my job more objectively. I was able to look and see, okay, what am I willing to do? What am I able to do? What do I have time to give these students? When I'm giving a piano lesson on Zoom, what things can I absolutely not hear no matter how hard I try? And can I just let go of that for today? Um, so I haven't read all the studies on disengagement. I mostly are, I'm interested in the, the higher ed sort of data, um, but studies have suggested that, of course, this is happening in the public schools too. Mm -hmm. um, in the public schools, I think we're seeing more than in higher ed, teachers are literally leaving um, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, um, for better or worse, probably better, I'm guessing, uh, because we tend to do, uh, when we follow our gut, we tend to make good decisions along the way. I noticed I, my disengagement felt like I was settling for bare minimum mm. and, you know, okay, I'm getting the job done. And, and that counted, you know, especially when, okay, it's bad Wi-Fi, whatever. We still had a lesson, you know? And so I feel like I'm crawling out of that spirit yet. I'm still like, oh, okay, I can do fun things. And, you know, not that, not that I wasn't fun before, but it just felt like it really, kept me from expanding because I knew things were just, I was tethered to a screen, you know? So 
um, I feel like I'm climbing out of that disengagement, but also, yes, I want to be careful about how much I do re-engage. So you had a couple of terms that I thought were very interesting when you were talking about disengagement as being healthy. And one of them was, let's see if I can say it, disidentification affirmation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Say that three times. (laughs) Right. Uh Yeah. What's interesting about those. And of course that's sort of a a cognitive behavioral psychology technique um, that I was introduced to maybe 20 years ago, and I always used it with students who struggle with performance anxiety. Um, But now that we're talking about disengagement um, on a global scale, we can think that disengagement in part involves disidentification. Um, Because if you identify with everything you do, especially what you do for a living, um, it's very hard, as we discussed, to sort of separate, you know, this is my personal time, this is my work time, this is who I am. Um, and the problem with a lot, not the problem, the case for, for many musicians is that we're so enmeshed with our music, we love our music and, and our students, and we identify ourselves as musicians. So I, you know, if we walk up to that, and you know, we're standing next to that punch bowl at the imaginary party and you say hey um my name's Layla and I say well I'm Vanessa I'm a musician I am a musician I don't say I do music (laughs) (laughs) or in my free time I play the piano I say I am a musician which can be wonderful until things go wrong until the stress sets in until I give a performance that doesn't go well and if I identify as a musician and I have a pretty bad performance experience, all of a sudden my sense of self is shaken because I didn't do the thing well. And that's where these disidentification affirmations can be so helpful because you can say, I am not my music. It feels counterintuitive for those of us who are creative artists, but the truth is I am separate from my music. It is something I do and it is part of my identity, but it isn't me. It's good for teachers too, because you can say, um, I teach, but I'm not my teaching. I can say I perform music, but I am not these performances, whether they're good or bad. Mm -hmm. And I just think this is a fun activity that we can do throughout the day to practice separating who we are from what we do. Mm. You know, I, I remember I had a light bulb moment. I had three, we had three little boys and I got to go on an airplane all by myself. So I thought, well, I'm going to learn how to parent in, in one flight. And I read Parenting with Love and Logic. And it really didn't help the parenting all that much, but it completely ah. shifted my mindset about teaching. And I stopped equating my self-worth with how my students were doing at the piano. And that Uh, It was an amazing feeling. And, you know, I've lived with that my entire life. And I think that has helped me become a better teacher because I'm not associating my worth to how well they do. 
That's right. It does make you a better teacher. And especially if you're in a situation where you are rewarded somehow for how your students achieve, mm -hmm. um, you know, it helps to sort of set back and think, well, these are these little humans are their own people. And I am just guiding them on this path. But what you're describing is a wonderful moment of mindfulness where that mm -hmm. awareness was a subtle internal shift that created a much larger sort of um, almost internal shift for you. So um, that's why I'm so drawn to the idea of the more self-aware we are, the more we can have those light bulb moments and those little shifts that sort of change our uh, the whole context of how we navigate our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe is an example of what you call detaching with compassion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you explain that phrase just a little bit? I love that one. Sure. It's um, it, it really ties in well with our conversation about disengagement, because as I mentioned, uh, we tend to think of that as a negative thing, right? So if you're um, working with a troubled student or a troubled friend or a toxic friend, and you want to be there to support them, it's one thing to be able to support someone. It's another thing to be so enmeshed and engaged in their struggles that you don't have any room for yourself. So um that's a great example of disengaging, but not completely detaching your emotions. So I often will think, you know, if I have a student, for example, who um, just hasn't been practicing and hasn't been practicing and I've been, you know, trying to help them with this and then they have a meltdown. We've all had that, you know, mm -hmm. the student comes in, sits on the piano bench, you say, how are you? And they lose it. Rather than me sort of investing all of my emotion and my anger, my frustration, my, my compassion, if I think to myself, I can love this student and care about this student and encourage this student, but not be enmeshed in this student's emotional process. So for me, it is most helpful when my students are giving a recital, um, especially my students who struggle with performance anxiety or deep down, I think, I don't know if they're prepared for this and we're, we've all had that experience. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, we're sitting in the auditorium or we're sitting in the audience and our student walks up to the piano and there's that feeling of, you almost want to try to will them to do well. But I think to myself, I send them love, but I detach with compassion. So the compassion is still there, but the, the nervousness and the anxiety and the sort of control freaky part that every teacher has is sort of put to rest. And mm -hmm. I sometimes even, you know, I'm a visualizer. I like to visualize things. And I will sometimes imagine that there's this golden cord from me to my student mm -hmm. because we all feel attached, almost like an umbilical cord, mm -hmm. right? We all feel attached to these students that we've nurtured for years and years and years. And I notice that if I'm struggling to detach with compassion, I will imagine that I cut that cord, you know, <laughs> right? Okay. And I yeah. let them, it's like setting them out on their yeah. little ocean in their little boat and waving to them from afar and wishing them well, mm -hmm. because that's how they become independent musicians without me. <laughs> so mm. that, that helps me anyway. Yes. I love that visual. Mm, that's powerful. I, I want to go back. Let's step back just a minute because I know a lot of teachers will talk about a student coming in and, you know, we didn't even talk about student disengagement. All right. That's a right. real thing as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we as teachers deal with a student who, you know, some of us aren't, um, 
we're not always so lucky. And some of, the, of us have students who really don't want to be there, but their parents are making them there, mm-hmm. making them sit there. So how do you approach a student like that and cheer them on, but don't take them on as your responsibility ultimately? Well, you ask a lot of million dollar questions <laughs> and that is one of them. And, <clears throat> you know, if we were doing this podcast five years ago, I think the conversation would be very different because I think we would maybe bounce tips off of each other of how to, you know, inspire and motivate and encourage students to develop their own intrinsic motivation and find repertoire that suits their style. Okay. Okay. But now it's today and we've gone through this pandemic and what we're finding out is a lot of this disengagement has nothing to do with the class or the music lessons. It has to do with their own stress and trauma. So the conversation is very different today because just because a student is not engaged in a music lesson, for example, might not have anything to do with the music lesson. They may love you. They may love their music. That may be their sort of sanctuary. Once a week, they come and they get this attention and they engage in music, but they come across as as if they're not listening, as if they're spaced out, as if their attention is wandering. And we have to remember as teachers, it's not always about us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We think it is, but Mm -hmm. not always about us. So sometimes it's brainstorming repertoire and lesson planning and creative activities. But sometimes it's just meeting the student where they are. We often talk about that on a musical level. You know, my student is in this method book or my student is ready for this sonata, but we also have to meet our students emotionally where they are. And if that means that we're going to have a semester or two of what feels like pulling teeth to us might be, as I said, sort of a sanctuary for them. It's the one place they can come and not worry about whatever tests or uh, something going on at home or um, so sometimes it's looking at a bigger picture of this student. Again, those eight dimensions of well-being, the student isn't just detaching in music, something else is going on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's providing a sympathetic ear, but honestly, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not thinking I need to be a therapist for the student. I'm just going to be present with this student. Sometimes that's all another human being wants is Mm -hmm. for you to give them eye contact to say, I hear you. I'm with you in this moment. We're sharing together. I'm here. And sometimes (laughs) for many students, that's why they come to their lessons. So Mm -hmm. it's a sticky subject of of disengagement these days. And I think we might not even know for a couple of years what's really going on um, in the psychology of some of these uh, students who have been through school during the pandemic. I agree. I've I've spent many times being a sounding board (laughs) uh, when there's another one right in the room with me. And I've also often wondered, you know, is this a bench or a couch? Uh, because I do end up, I do end up listening a lot and then try and hold back by giving too much of advice. But do you find yourself mostly just listening? Do you ever give advice or do you try and stay away from that? That's a great question. I I think the older I get, the less advice I give. And it's it's harder because the more advice I have to give, right? Because I've looked at these research studies. But honestly, first of all, if you're in a lesson and you find you're doing a lot of listening, 
that's sure better than doing a lot of talking, right? If I'm exactly. observing teachers teach, my comment is always, gosh, you do a lot of talking. Why don't you do more playing, right? So the fact that we're listening is a good thing. Um, I think sometimes students need advice, but I think most of the time students just want you to hear them. Like they don't want you to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Um, they just mm-hmm. want you to hear their problems. And, you know, Often this is a healthy thing. They come in and they sit down on the couch slash bench. Yes. <laughs> they, they see you as a safe person. They open mm-hmm. up, they tell you what's going on. You listen, you detach with compassion and you say, Hey, gosh, that sounds so difficult. Well, I'm here for you. And what, sometimes I will say, what do you need from me? Or what can I do mm-hmm. from you? And usually the answer is nothing. Cause really there's nothing you can do. Um, that's sort of what I think is a healthy music teacher student um, dynamic. I think it starts to become unhealthy when students sort of lapse into a habit. And this actually happens to me more often with my adult students than my college students. They come in and they see you as a friend and they want to have coffee and they start, you know, unloading or whatever. And then what happens is your roles become blurred. The role of teacher and student sort of lapses over into therapist and client or uh, friend or mentor. It just sort of gets all murky. And sometimes that's just a habit of you know, it's a conditioned response. They walk into your studio and you're safe and there they are. So what I do in those situations, sometimes I try to mix up the pattern of the lesson. I think most of us have kind of a, kind of a, agenda that we follow in our lessons you know some of us start with chatting and then maybe there's a warm-up and then maybe there's a creative activity and then maybe they do their recital piece or whatever depending Mm -hmm. on what you teach so with students like that sometimes doesn't happen often but instead of them sitting down and me saying how are you doing today what's going on sometimes they'll walk in and sit down and I'll say hey I just learned, let me play this thing for you. I just got these portraits in jazz by Valerie Capers and they're so cool. Let me play this. Tell me what you think. Or, hey, let's start with some ear training. And then maybe halfway through the lesson, I'll say, so what's going on? How are Mm. you? And I found that breaking up sort of the expectation can help sort of reestablish those boundaries. Mm. Mm. Reestablish boundaries. That's good. Because I do find that a lot of lessons can be draining to me because I am playing therapist and I'd much rather be the teacher. It's harder being a therapist <laughs> and I don't it, have the training for that. It, well, exactly. And I think of, um, I used to have a tennis ball in my studio. I don't know what happened to it, but when I taught more children, um, I had this tennis ball and sometimes I would toss it back and forth. I'd have them stand on the other side of the studio and we would toss this tennis ball back and forth. And while we're tossing this tennis ball back and forth, I would say something, it's been so many years, but I'll try to remember, I would say something like, see what we're doing here? This is a give and take. You toss the ball to me and I toss the ball to you. But it has to be an equal give and take. And it has to be an equal distribution of energy. That's what I tell them. And now what I'm saying to you is that if you're exhausted by the end of the lesson, that means you have been throwing balls Mm -hmm. (laughs) and -hmm. they're not tossing them back, you know? And so that's when it's time to step back and only give the student as much energy as they're willing to take at that time. Mm. I always teach music teachers have incredible intuition. And if they would follow their gut, when you're exhausted after a lesson, something's wrong. You need to 
to disengage yes. somehow or yeah. restructure or give less. And it's not a bad thing to give less. It's actually a good thing to give exactly what the student needs, not more. Mm-hmm. I call that my angst meter. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> if there's angst, there's, it's, it, I, I, I have to change something. And I oh, am I not it. into confrontations. I hate ending things, you know, I, um, but I am learning that about myself, that even though I drag my feet, I have to obey my angst meter. I love that. And you can use that in so many situations. You mentioned non-confrontational. So you can think that on your angst meter, if you don't establish boundaries or you don't confront a student or you don't confront a toxic you know, colleague, you're at nine on the angst meter. Yeah. But if you do summon the courage and set the boundaries or say what you need to say or confront the toxic person, it'll still be angsty, but you'll go down to the, you know, four. Right. Yes. Peter, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you for uh, making it a clearer pic- picture yet for me, uh, but <laughs> I have used that and it really does help. And I've, I've given that idea to other people too, who I know are struggling, you know, with doing too much. So um, now we've been talking a lot about disengagement. So I'd love to have a second conversation with you about engaging, and I would call it re-engaging. How are we going to re-engage in this post-pandemic world? So we will stop for right now, and then we will continue on and talk about re-engaging. Sounds good. Hold on, there's more to learn from Vanessa, and you won't want to miss it. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation, where we discuss re-engaging with resistance. Before I sign off, I'm going to shamelessly plug my 8 plus 8 Composium. And that's because I've seen from my own experience that nurturing creativity at the Keys is like an essential vitamin for your well-being. The Composium offers you a chance to compose within boundaries. Why boundaries? Well, when boundaries are clear, artistry flourishes. Eight bars at a time, you'll gradually create an original composition in what I call the safety of limitations. What's unique about the Composium is that you walk alongside seven others as they compose. It's a safe place filled with like-minded teachers. Never composed before? No worries. You're given a recipe that promises success as you make creative decisions along the way. Anyone who signs up for a 2023 Composium will receive a bonus video tutorial on a new and free video editing software. It's fantastic for creating a video of you playing your original composition. I'm really excited about this incredible tool. Head to the show notes at leelavis.com slash key ideas to learn more about Vanessa and her book called The Mindful Musician and to save your spot at the Composium. Remember, space is limited, so don't wait. I'm Leela Viss. See you in the trenches and looking forward to meeting you and your creativity. <laughs>